Once again, today we're so blessed um, to have one of my mentors. And uh, this brother has been going to us for the past five years already, right now. And we're just so thankful for his life, his ministry. He has been equipping our pastors on expository preaching. And our pastors are learning a lot. They're learning how to deliver sermons properly, interpret scripture properly. And we're just so thankful for this man and also for his wife. Uh, his wife was a tremendous blessing this week. Uh, she had three sessions with our women. And so today, once again, let's welcome in our midst somebody who is no longer a stranger to us. Let's welcome Dr. Tim Carnes. Let's give the Lord a big hand. Mayong Buntag. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you, Pastor Mel, for your kind words. And I mentioned this last night, but I just again want to um, express my gratitude for the privilege to be in this pulpit. And um, I know what this means. I know the importance of the Word of God as you proclaim it every week here. And so um, I do not take lightly uh, this opportunity, so I appreciate that. And I do not take lightly standing before the Lord to uh, proclaim what He has said to us. And because of that, I, I want to ask Him for His guidance and help as we look to this, His Word today. So could you please pray with me for a moment? Oh Lord, indeed, You are greater than we can imagine. And, and Lord, You've given us a glimpse of who You are through Your Word. And what a glimpse it is. Oh Lord, you are far beyond what we could comprehend and yet at the same time you reveal yourself to us. We are humbled that you would even choose to let yourself be known and even more humbled that you would send your own son to make possible a relationship with you, to be forgiven. We learn these truths from your word so we are grateful for it and I pray now as we look to your word that you would give us understanding that you would move in our hearts not only to know what you have said but to be motivated to apply it so may your spirit be at work I pray in these coming moments in Jesus name amen all right well this month uh, the month of October Uh, it's often celebrated by many churches around the world as Reformation Month because at the end of this month, October 31st, we will celebrate the 502nd year from the day that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church doors of the Wittenberg Church. Those theses which declare his concerns, his grievances for particularly the, the uh, practice of indulgences within the Catholic Church and other concerns that he had had as he was thinking about the impact that the church had had on people at that time. And so he posted these 95 theses on the door and many see that event as sort of the spark that lit the Re Reformation. But it wasn't those 95 theses that brought the Reformation to the flaming fire that it became. It was actually something else. It was actually not the reformers themselves even. They were certainly used by God, John Knox and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Luther, of course. 
These men were used by God in the Reformation, but it wasn't even them that created the massive stir that was the most uh, profound movement in the church since the church began. It actually was something else. The oxygen which fed the raging fire of the Reformation was the word of God itself. The word of God being unleashed, particularly in the language of the people. In fact, one of the greatest things Martin Luther did was not just posting those theses on the wall, on the door of the Wittenberg church, but actually he came up with and he worked on a translation of the Bible into German so that his own people could read the Bible for themselves. And really it was the word of God, or in the Reformation we we call it sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, which brought about the Reformation, because it is through the scriptures we see sola fide, faith alone. It is through the scriptures we learn of sola gratia, grace alone. It is through the scriptures that we come to understand solus Christus, in Christ alone. It is through the scriptures we recognize and are shown that all things are to be soli deo gloria, to God alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation, and sola scriptura stands among them as very important. And in fact, Martin Luther, a couple years later, he was called to stand and give account for the things that he had said and done at a time called the Diet of Worms. And it is there when he said these words, he was asked to recant what he had said and he was threatened with his own life if he did not. Listen to what he said. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. You see, Luther, in that moment, when he was called to turn away from what he had said, what he had taught, what he came to believe, in that moment, he did not stand upon his 95 theses. In that moment, he did not stand upon his own beliefs. In that moment, he did not stand upon his concerns about the church or about the Pope or these practices of indulgences. What gave him the conviction, what gave him the confidence, what gave him the boldness to stand there knowing his life could be over in a moment was this. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. That statement captures the idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone. You see, sola scriptura though was not something that Martin Luther discovered. It was actually known well before the time of Martin Luther. In fact, the Apostle Paul said these words in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so that passage really is the core of sola scriptura because Paul here tells us that scripture alone is God-breathed. Scripture alone is able to train us for righteousness. Scripture alone is all we need to be equipped for every good work, and Scripture alone is the source of truth. Now, in Martin Luther's day, he encountered opposition to that. In fact, it was the Roman Catholic Church which which attacked this notion of sola scriptura because it said that the church defined what is true, that the church decides what is correct and evaluates the Scripture. Our culture today faces another opposition. 
Our culture today faces another opponent to sola scriptura, and that is the philosophy of postmodernism. Postmodernism, it is a philosophy which declares that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that truth is subjective. It declares that because humans are subjective, there's no way we can know objective truth, especially when it comes to religion or spiritual matters. In his book, The Truth War, John MacArthur said that the central characteristic of postmodernism is the rejection of every expression of certainty. In fact, postmodernists would say this, that if one were to say he knows the truth or she knows the truth, they would say that is arrogant. They would say no human being can come to know the truth absolutely. In fact, they would say this, they would say, That may be true for you, but I have my own truth. Just as Pastor Mel mentioned a moment ago, relativism. I've had many, many people in sharing the gospel with them say, well, that's good for you. I have, you have your truth and I have my truth. That's postmodernist thinking, that that truth is squishy, it's subjective, There, there is no absolute standard. And I know that this church, that living word, stands upon the truth. I, I understand that. I know that we believe that truth comes from the Word of God. Pastor Mel has been preaching that for years and years here. I realize that we affirm this idea, but brothers and sisters, we would be naive to think that the postmodernist thinking around us would not have an influence if we're not careful. We would be foolish to think that the postmodernist philosophy that that is permeating social media, that is permeating through many expressions, even in their education, not only in the West, but all around the world, we would be foolish to think it could not have an impact on us, and we would be especially foolish to think it cannot have an impact on our children. We just dedicated a little one, little Zachary, this morning. Little Zachary's going to grow up in a world that is filled with this idea that there is no absolute truth. He's going to be confronted in so many different ways, and and I'm not saying this to scare the parents, so uh, please, just as a concern for all of us, we need to be aware, we need to be alert. Postmodernism, in fact, has already found its way into the church. There's a movement called the Emergent Church Movement, which has adopted postmodernism as its foundation. And while many in the Emergent Church may not deny the existence of absolute truth, they would certainly embrace the idea that truth is, is hazy. It's, it's, you can't be certain about it, that it would be impossible to know the truth with any degree of certainty. Some would even say this of the gospel, Brian McLaren, one of the leading figures in the emergent church who came out of a, of a conservative evangelical background, one of the leading figures of the emergent church, he said this, I don't think we have the gospel right yet. Let that sink in a minute. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. We don't have the gospel right? That's an amazing statement because what did Jesus say? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. If we don't know the gospel, if we don't have the gospel right yet, then we don't have the truth that can set us free. That directly contradicts what Jesus said. 
And if we don't have the truth of the gospel, we have no hope, we have no savior, we have no eternal future that we could look forward to. Not everyone in the emergent church movement would say that statement regarding the gospel. But many have been influenced by postmodern thinking to the extent that they would minimize the importance of doctrine or even ignore it altogether. And they justify this, that we cannot take a stand on scriptural truth because after all, how can you be sure that you know the truth? How can you be sure that, that scripture reveals absolute truth? You know, because really, we just need to to, to, to not be so emphatic about doctrine. Doctrine divides. We, we need to be more tolerant. It's not really about the truth so much as it about our experience together as a community. In fact, uh, at our church, oftentimes when there are individuals who are seeking to plant a church in our area, uh, many times they will call our church and looking for opportunities for partnership. And of course, we're very open to that. And so I would meet with these individuals and talk with them and the first question I would ask them is what is the gospel I want to make sure if they're gonna plant a church that they're planting it on the right gospel message and the second question I ask them is what does your doctrinal statement look like now I'm not doing that to test them or to argue with them about doctrine but but I want to do that because I want to see if they've thought about that and many times they look at me with a blank stare like what are you talking about a doctrinal statement? Why would I do that? And it really concerns me because there's this recognition on their part or admission on their part that they're, they're really not, their focus isn't truth, their focus is on building relationships and getting to know people and then, then I'll influence them through those relationships. And certainly we need to do that. We need to build relationships. But ultimately, your relationship, your example, is not going to bring that person to salvation. It can be part of the process, but ultimately, how does a person come to know Christ? Through the truth of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of Christ. This postmodernist thinking has not only infiltrated the church through the emergent church movement, but also, as Pastor Mel mentioned earlier, the hyper-grace movement, this idea that the wonderful grace of God has been distorted and over-exaggerated and misunderstood to the point of, of telling folks that there's no need to pursue holiness, that don't mor worry about mortifying or killing sin, there's no need for repentance, that has all been taken care of. And it's here I would like to make a a commercial plug for my mentor, Steve Lawson, who's gonna be here and talk about this whole subject of holiness. Very important that you take the time to come to that. This doctrine of hyper-grace has embraced the postmodernist ideal that, that elevates feeling what is right over doing or thinking what is right. There's another even more dangerous movement in the church that's come in the last 10 years or so it's known as the New Apostolic Reformation. It was birthed within my own state of California in the US and it is sweeping across America and 
many places in the world. And this movement, what's so dangerous about it is it names the name of Christ and yet at the same time is saying there's things in the world that come from the New Age movement and other philosophies, truths or, or ideas that, that, that they've discovered that we have not yet. Things that God has created that, that, that others have founded. So we need to learn from the New Age movement. We need to learn from these worldly philosophies. But these worldly philosophies, the New Age movement, or as it's known today, the new truth, or the new uh, thought, excuse me, they're from the pit of hell. I don't have time to get into the, the details, but just, I just want to warn you, the postmodernist idea of, of being happy, of experience, of feeling what is right, overthinking what is right, that there is no standard of absolute truth, that we need to discover in, for ourselves in the world how we can live and, and what can make us better, what can make us happy. This is filtering its way into churches and not just crazy churches, but even those in our own camp. And so brothers and sisters, we must be alert we must take this seriously because again, I'm not only concerned for us, I'm concerned for the next generation. And now as a Lolo, I'm very concerned for my oppose, for their generation. Because this is only going to get worse. We must be diligent. We must be aware of any influence, anything that could hinder us or distract us from our confidence, our boldness, our, our foundation as sola scriptura, scripture alone as a source of God's truth. And listen, we would be naive to the fact that, that there's an enemy, we'd be naive if we don't remind ourselves there's an enemy behind all of this. There's an enemy who has as a primary mode of attack to undermine the truth, to attack the truth, to bring doubt about the truth. In fact, this very enemy, the first words that scripture records from our great enemy is this. It was a question posed to Eve. Do you remember that question? Did God really say? In that statement, he reveals his strategy. A strategy that has been his primary strategy from that very first time that we hear from him, and that is to distort the truth, to undermine the truth, to bring doubts about the truth, to obscure the truth. And I believe that's his primary mode of operation. Certainly he does tempt. Certainly that is part of it, but I think his greatest efforts are being made to, un to veil the eyes of the unbelievers to veil the eyes of the lost, right? First Corinthians 4 describes this. How does he veil? How does he blind our eyes? By keeping us from knowing the truth. Now, if Satan loses a person to the gospel, if, if someone, if God unveils our eyes as we sung about earlier and we come to see the truth about Jesus Christ and come to know him as we turn from our sin and put our trust in him alone, as we come to that place, Satan just doesn't say, oh, well, I've lost that person. I'll just go on to someone else. Listen, if Satan cannot keep us from heaven, he will do everything he can to keep us from holiness. If he can't keep us from heaven, 
He'll do all he can to keep us from holiness. And how does he do that? In the same way, by distorting the truth, by casting doubt of whether or not we could know the truth, by, by undermining our convictions that the Bible is the only source of the truth. Jesus in John 17, 17, as he was praying for the disciples who would be attacked by the evil one, he asks the Father, he says to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word, he said, is truth. He had a conviction that it would be the scriptures and the scriptures alone in combating the deceits and the temptations of the evil one. In fact, that's what Jesus shows us by his own example in Matthew 4, did he not? When he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he do? Did he rebuke Satan? Did he say, Satan, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. No, he said three times, right? It is written. It is written. It is written. He relied on the truth. And he's our example to us. Now, we must realize this danger that could move us away from relying on Scripture alone as a source of truth, the, to be sola scriptura saints, this, this danger is not just from the outside. It's not just from our great enemy Satan. It's not just from uh, postmodernist thinking. It's not just from false teachers or misguided preachers who've been influenced by that postmodernist culture. We must also realize the, the problem or the danger can come from us as well. The danger arises, we see in scripture, not just from those who teach, but also from those who listen. And we find this in our text this morning in 2 Timothy chapter four. Please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter four. As you may remember, 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's epistles. It is his final epistle to his young protege, Timothy, and Paul was aware that his death was soon to come, and so there's an earnestness in this letter. He recognizes that not only is he about to die, but that false teachers are rising up all around him. And so there's this concern, this this earnestness, and, and we see that and emphasize to Timothy all throughout this letter, he's telling Timothy, hold on to the truth. Defend the truth, protect the truth, live by the truth, teach the truth. In chapter 3, Paul warns of false teachers and things getting worse and these false teachers coming about, those who oppose the truth, evil men. And so he says in 2 Timothy 4.1, these words to Timothy. In light of that, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. As Paul comes to these closing remarks in this last letter, the last of his epistles, he gives probably the most critical instruction he can to Timothy. 
And I say it's most critical because notice how he introduces the instruction. Notice he says, in the presence of God. And more than that, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And even more than that, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And then even added to that, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is an emphatic, somber, solemn call to Timothy. And what is the call? What does he say? Timothy, above everything else, you're standing before God. You must do this. You must what? Preach the word. Preach the word. And he tells Timothy here when to preach the word, in season and out of season. How to preach the word. To rebuke, to reprove, to exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he tells Timothy why. Why, Timothy, do you need to be committed before God as the greatest priority in your life to preach the word? Why? Notice verse 3. You see the first word there? For. He's going to tell us why. Timothy, preach the word for or because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Why must the word be preached? Because the time will come when those listening won't want to hear it anymore. And that's what's happening today. People still going to church. You realize that, don't you? Many are still going to church. But they're going to churches to places that say things that they want to hear. Say things that make them feel good. Say, have experiences that, that don't aren't consistent with the truth, but, but they receive those experiences as true because experience is more important than truth. Notice here there's a focus on the listener in verses three and four and emphasized by that repetition of the word ear. And notice it says here these, these listeners will gather teachers who tickle their ears. They want to have their ears tickled. What is he saying there? That's a, an idiom there, a phrase. That, it's this idea of uh, the ESV says that we'll have an itching ear. And the idea there is how does it feel when you have an itch and you begin to scratch it? Oh, that, that feels better. That feels better. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. It's this idea of as, as they're hearing things that they like to hear, it's like their ears has an itch that's being scratched. Oh, I like that. Tell me more. That makes me feel good. That's what I like to hear. It brings some pleasant feelings as that itch is being scratched. And this is what we're seeing all around us. Church services, sermons that are focused on catering to scratching an itch in a person's ear. In fact, I was watching a, a sermon couple of months ago uh, from a particular church and the, the person was preaching from Romans 12 on worldliness and the need, you know, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he's going on and on about being careful about being worldly. Well, in this video, it was actually uh, recorded by someone else who then at the, after about 10 minutes of the sermon, he shows a a clip of what was going on right before the sermon, of their time of singing. And in that clip, it was these immodestly dressed women singing a song from Led Zeppelin as part of their time of praise. Can you imagine that? 
What if that happened here? Some ladies came up and they're dressed immodestly and, and the, the lights were dimmed and they're, dim- I won't even do it. I don't, you wouldn't think it's sultry, but it was just this very inappropriate nightclub, sexy, and they're singing Led Zeppelin songs. And then the preacher comes up and says, watch out for worldliness. The see, that was catering to what they wanted. John MacArthur affirms this in his book, this idea of people just desiring experience, feeling over truth. He says, um, this generation just won't sit in the pew while someone up front preaches at them. They're products of a media-driven generation and they need a church experience that will satisfy them on their own terms by giving them what they want. Now at this point, perhaps you're asking yourself, what? What does this have to do with us? I mean, certainly, I come here because Pastor Mel preaches from the Bible and he teaches us truth and he tells us it is true and I believe that. So why are we talking about this this morning? Well, the answer to that question is seen in verses three and four by understanding who the they is that Paul is talking about here. Notice in verses three and four, they will not endure, wanting their ears tickled. They will accumulate their own desires. To whom is Paul referring to here? Well, in this context, Paul is referring to those who are listening to Timothy's preaching, those within Timothy's very own congregation, those who are professing believers, those who have become church members, those who have perhaps heard Timothy for years. Even they, some of them at some point will turn away from the truth, wanting something else that's going to make them feel good. And remember, we're not talking about a weak church here. This is the church of Ephesus. This is the church that the Apostle Paul planted. This is the church where the Apostle Paul himself stayed for about three years, investing in the church, investing in the leaders, teaching and training. This is the church where then Timothy, very gifted man, was sent for several years. And in fact, this church in Revelation 2.2, 30 years later, was described as a church that was grounded in the truth and sound doctrine. And yet Paul says, even those within the Ephesian church are at risk of turning aside and accumulating other teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And so brothers and sisters, if the Ephesians were susceptible to this, if the Ephesians were in danger of going down this road, let us not think that it could not happen to us either. Do not think it could not happen to you. If we're not careful, the same thing can happen. And over the years, I've seen so many preachers, so many biblical scholars, so many teachers turn away from the truth, and time does not permit me to go example after example, but even just in recent days, Joshua Harris, who announces on Instagram that, that he's no longer a Christian. You know, I've read some of his books and found them to have some helpful instruction. And I'm not bringing him up to, to judge him or to say we're better than him or to look down on him. I, I bring it up with great sorrow 
and sobriety because if, if he is susceptible, then all of us could be susceptible. So how do we avoid it? How do we avoid the influence of postmodernist thinking around us? How do we avoid being drawn in and being like those that Paul warns about who just want their ear itched, who just want to hear what they want to hear, who just want to have feel-good messages or, or things that, that don't make them feel guilty but things that they like? How do we avoid the postmodernist idea that there is no objective truth, that you cannot be certain? Well, Paul gives the answer in 2 Timothy 4.2. Timothy, preach the word. Do it all the time, preach with conviction. Jesus said, or excuse me to that, James would add, don't just be listeners, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. It's not just knowledge acquired, it's knowledge applied. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And so the answer for us, brothers and sisters, is to know the truth to depend on the truth, to hear the truth, to pursue the truth. Proverbs 23, 23 says, buy the truth and do not sell it. But what's gonna motivate us to do that? What is going to move us to buy the truth and not sell it? What is going to keep us from straying from the truth? What is going to keep us relying on the word of God? And what is going to keep us as sola scriptura saints? Well, we find the answer to that in the words just before Paul told Timothy to preach the word. I'd like to take you back to 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. And it is in these verses, verses 14 to 17, that we're going to find three truths about the truth to motivate us to depend on the truth, to be sola scriptura saints. Look with me at verse 14. Just after warning Timothy about the wicked false teachers who will rise up, depraved individuals who oppose the truth, he tells Timothy these words, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, these verses we find, in these verses we find three truths about the truth to motivate us to know and live by the truth. Three truths to move us to be sola scriptura saints. And the first of these is simply this, God speaks through it. God speaks through it. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says there, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired in the New American Standard is a word that Paul made up where he took two words and put them together. Theos for God and neo for to breathe. And so he put them together, theonostos, God breathed. I like how the ESV, they translate it that way. That's a better translation. God breathed. It's not inspired, it's expired. And notice he says there, all scripture is expired by God. That's because it is the spirit of God who moved through the writers of scripture, human authors, to ensure that what was written 
What landed on the page from these human authors is exactly what God intended to be there. So because the Holy Spirit is behind it as the author, capital A, we can know that this word is the truth. That God speaks through it. Now, don't let the significance of that go by without thinking about them. God speaks through it. We have a book in which the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation who made all things, who's all powerful, who's infinite, who's eternal, who's omniscient, who knows everything, who is just, who is holy, that God has spoken to us. He's not remained silent. He's, he's given us his word. That is incredible. You know, I remember in what my uh, Old Testament introduction class in seminary, the professor uh, showed us a poem that had been uncovered from Nineveh, actually, from the library there, and it was a prayer of this person, and the prayer went something like, to the God I know or do not know, to the God who may or may not be angry with me, to the God who may or may not forgive me. To this God who I know or I do not know. It's, it was this prayer that just made my heart break of this guy. He had no idea. His gods didn't speak to him. He didn't know what they wanted. Our God has spoken. He has given us his word. It is the only source of truth. In fact, did not Jesus say in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we don't have to guess what those words are because we have them written. And praise God for those who have gone before us to translate those words from the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic so that we can have them in our own languages. Jesus said every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul said all scripture is God-breathed. Every word of it. Every word of it. And if it is God-breathed, it is without error because God is without error. Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect. The judgments of the Lord are true. And so that's why Jesus could say your word is truth because God is truth. But postmodernists don't like that assertion. In fact, another emergent church leader, Rob Bell, he wrote the book Love Wins, in which he denies hell. He denies the fact that God would judge anyone. He said this about the Bible. He said, it wasn't written by a third party somewhere in the sky who passively and objectively tells you what the plan is. It was written by real people in real places at real times doing their best to make sense of it all. That's his description of the Bible. There was no third party involved in the process. It was just from human beings who were trying to figure out life. Is that how Paul described the Bible? Is that how Peter describe the Bible or the other apostles? Is that how Jesus describes the Bible? I certainly would take their view over Rob Bell's any day. But see, this is the thinking out there and he's very influential and there are many like him that are undermining the, the fact that scripture is the truth, scripture alone. And again, these are people coming out of conservative churches 
But the Bible, brothers and sisters, is not a book that is subject to the judgment or evaluation of human beings. It's God-breathed, and it's all true. And listen, if it is important enough for God to breathe it out, it's important enough for us to breathe it in. It's our spiritual oxygen. That's exactly what the disciples said, that Peter said to Jesus in John 6. When Jesus said, are you going to leave, <clears throat> to leave also, like all the other followers did? And Peter says, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> where would we go? We should be motivated to be sola scriptura saints because God speaks through the scripture. God speaks through it. Secondly, we should be motivated because God saves through it. Take a look again with me at verse 14 in 2 Timothy 3. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able, notice here, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We learn here, Paul says, that from infancy, when Timothy was a little guy, even as young as little Zachary there, his Lola and his mother would, would read the scriptures to him, would teach the word of God to him. His father was a, a Greek a unbeliever. But his mother and his grandmother were faithful to make known the scriptures to Timothy as he's growing older so that he had an understanding of the word of God and when he heard the gospel he knew this is true this is the Messiah that my mother and my grandmother have read about to me from the word of God God saves through his truth again Romans 10 17 faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ that's an amazing thing to think about that people are transformed their lives completely changed as the Spirit of God works through the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. It is powerful. The Bible is powerful. I, I love the story in Acts chapter eight of Philip. Philip the evangelist, he's out and about and Samaria and the spirit directs him to go down a particular road and as he's going down that road he comes across a man that's referred to in scripture as Ethiopian eunuch he's a, a court official for the queen of Ethiopia and this guy's in a chariot and he's, he's actually reading from Isaiah 53 and Philip comes up to him and says sir I noticed you're, you're reading do you understand what you're reading the guy says no would you explain it to me wow that's that's conversational evangelism. That's, that's really a wonderful opportunity Philip had. And so Philip explains to him who Isaiah 53 was talking about. And it says there in Acts 35 that beginning from that text, he preached Jesus to him from the scriptures. And you know what? The guy gets saved. I mean, think about that. He's, he's out, this foreigner is out on a road in the middle of nowhere going along and he happens to have a, a part of scripture with him and, he, and the, this man happens to come alongside him who can explain that scripture to him and as he comes to understand it, the spirit of God works in his heart. The veil was ripped apart away from his eyes and he comes to know Jesus Christ. Just from hearing the truth. That's a powerful book. I remember a friend of mine uh, not long ago, 
telling me his testimony that he had grown up in church but um, you know walked away from it didn't believe is real became agnostic he said and one day he just someone asked him a question about the Bible or something like that so he just started reading again he thought you know maybe I'll read the Bible again so he starts in Genesis and he's moving his way through he gets to Exodus and then Leviticus and as he's reading about all those sacrifices do you know what happened reading about the sacrificial system you know the parts in the Bible we tend to read through quickly right or or skip a little bit because it doesn't make sense he's there reading it and he begins to be convicted of his sin as he sees that the need for people to confess their sin and offer sacrifice to be forgiven of it he is then under the conviction of the spirit convicted about his sin and he repents reading Leviticus of all books there was a uh, my wife and I were out with Pastor Mel and Marie last night and uh, my wife was sharing testimony of this woman who came out of the New Age movement, read, written 70 books. She's about 60 years old. And one of the books she would read is the Bible. She read many spiritual works. Well, she's reading the book of Deuteronomy. And it talks there about spiritual mediums and that, that they are an abomination, that they are of Satan, you know, and, and, and she's reading about spiritual mediums and she, she herself was a medium. And on the spot, she gets convicted of her sin from Deuteronomy. The word of God is powerful. We must rely on the truth. We must remain sola scriptura saints, not only because God speaks through his word, but because God saves through it. You know, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a lawyer comes up to Jesus to test him, it says. And the lawyer asks him, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with this, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You know what he's saying? Okay, Mr. Smart Lawyer, you're asking a very important question. What does the Bible say? And remember, at that point, all they had was the Old Testament. He points him to where? To the scripture. Jesus understood and he knew that it is in the Bible that we learn the truth that God is a perfectly holy and all-powerful God. It is in the Bible that we learn the truth that all of us have rebelled against God, deserving the judgment of hell. It is in the Bible that we learn the truth that God does not desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance. In the Bible, we learn the truth that God sent his own son to take upon himself a punishment you and I could not take upon ourselves. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. It is in the Bible that we learn that Jesus lived a perfect life and then suffered unjustly on the cross so that any who put their trust in him could be forgiven. It is in the Bible that we learn if we repent and surrender ourselves, turn from our sins, put our trust in Jesus Christ, that we can be saved. It is in the Bible that we learn that we can have fellowship with that God who made us if we would but trust in Christ alone. It's in the Bible that we learn that after Jesus died, the grave could not hold him. It is in the Bible that we learn the truth that Jesus is alive. Only in the scripture. 
It's in the Bible that we learn this truth that we can have fellowship, have a relationship with this God. Listen, friend, that is the only way. The only way we can be saved is through Jesus Christ alone. Have you made a commitment to follow Christ alone? Not relying on good works, not relying on church attendance, not relying on being in a family that is Christian. Have you put your trust in Christ alone? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is an absolute truth statement, and it is true. No one can come to the Father. No one can know God apart from his Son. And no one can know God apart from putting their trust in him alone, in Christ alone. He's the only one that has made payment for sin. He's the only one who has suffered a punishment you and I deserve. And if we confess our sins to him, ask for forgiveness genuinely, desire to turn from those sins and surrender ourselves to him, he'll forgive. It's in the Bible we learn the truth. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus Christ, will not perish but have eternal life. In the Bible, God speaks to us. He, say, he speaks through it. The Bible also, God sancti- uh, saves through it. Thirdly, God also sanctifies through it. We should be committed and remain sola scriptura saints because God sanctifies us through his word. Let me take you back to 2 Timothy 3, 16, where Paul says this, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul here says that, that the God-breathed scripture is profitable. That's the idea of useful, beneficial, to our advantage, for our good. It brings the conviction of sin, he says. It, it instructs us in how to be holy. It, it, in the Bible, we can learn how to be restored. And notice verse 17, that first word there, those first two words, so that. The Bible is adequate, it's for our good, it is, it is all we need so that it's profitable for us. The Bible's profitable, why? Because it makes us adequate. That idea there is complete able to meet any demand that life brings our way. The Bible is sufficient. I like how John Piper puts it. He says that whatever God expects us to do, the scriptures equips us to do. And this is critical that we understand this, especially today, especially in our postmodern culture, which would say there There are many things out there, there are many ways that you can find help with your problems. The Bible has some helpful ideas, but so do these other philosophies. Because there is no absolute truth, you can't be certain of the truth, so you just need to go with what works. Or what people think works. But listen, the scripture has all the answers. The scripture is sufficient for all we need. It is It helps us to be adequate, to complete, to be able to meet any demand or any issue that comes our way. So that if if you're struggling with a conflict, if you're struggling with an addiction or with your job or with lust or with a problem with anger or you're going through a time of suffering or trials or you have a wayward child, 
or you're struggling in a relationship or with poor health or with uh, poverty or persecution or the loss of a loved one, any situation that you can encounter in life, and we encounter all of those, scripture is sufficient, it's all we need. The truth of God's word is sufficient to help us know what to do, how to respond, what to think in the midst of those trials and difficulties. It's not as if we're saved, God then says, okay, you're into heaven and the re- you're on your own until you get there. Praise God for that. He walks with us along the way. How does he walk with us? As the Spirit of God works through the truth of his word. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Brothers and sisters, stand firm on the conviction that there is absolute truth. That absolute truth is found in God's word alone, sola scriptura. Let us especially remember that in this time in October when those who went before us stood upon that very truth and as a result, they changed the world. I like what John Piper says and I'm gonna close with these words. He says, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes, not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I cannot see what is lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then the Bible provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. That is well put. I love my eyes. I'm so thankful for them because I can see what is beautiful in this world. But I love the Bible so much more because it allows me to see the one who is beautiful, who made this world. Let's pray to him now. Oh Lord Jesus, you are beautiful in so many ways. Perfect in holiness, infinite love, just and kind, merciful and all-powerful. And we know these things only because of your word. We would not know you apart from your truth. Oh Lord, keep us committed to your word. Make us vigilant, Lord, to protect the truth. As as Paul said that the, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Oh Lord, I, I thank you for of the ministry here at Living Word. I thank you for Pastor Mel's commitment to rely on the Word of God as the truth and to proclaim it faithfully as he has for these many years. I pray, God, you would protect him and keep him firm 
in that, that he would continue to stand upon the word. Lord, I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would not stray into wanting to hear things that make us feel good, but Lord, that we would just want to know the truth. And, and the irony is, when we do come to know the truth, it, it does bring satisfaction, it does bring joy, but a true joy, not a false joy of this world. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that you would, by your spirit, protect us, keep us as sola scriptura saints, relying on your word alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.